Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast, the first for 2021. I'm Robin Adamson, Director of Investment Management from Tilney's Glasgow office. I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, who will start by giving us a review of 2020, cross the pond to examine US politics and how recent developments with the blue wave could affect future fiscal and monetary stimulus, consider if the market recovery we've seen over the last few months is sustainable, with information on how we are positioned, and finish off with a canter to oil, banks, and Bitcoin. I am, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, recording this podcast from my modest home in Scotland, while Ben delivers his words of wisdom from Seeger Scott Towers, which is, which is positioned somewhere within his vast estate in rural England. This recording takes place on Tuesday, the 12th of January, but before we begin, Here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So to kick off, Ben, would you like to give us a recap on what was a rather rollercoaster ride for markets in 2020? Absolutely. Thank you, Robin. Uh, I think if we look at at 2020, obviously markets were driven by the COVID-19 crisis, but there were lots of interesting points, I think, within that. And if we consider the way the year started, there's a reasonable amount of optimism as we went into January. But then as the the extent of the crisis started started to develop, we saw risk assets broadly falling, falling hard and falling together. If you look at major equity regions, pretty much every region fell on the order of 30% in about three weeks, a very fast, one of the fastest, in fact, market falls that we've seen uh, looking back through history. And really, there was nowhere to hide. Equity markets fell broadly, even areas such as corporate bonds fell. The main areas that benefited were the traditional safe havens of government bonds, which soared during during that uh, initial phase of the crisis. And then I think we saw interventions from governments and central banks, so fiscal stimulus, monetary policy stimulus coming through, and that triggered a bit of a a bit of a bounce. But it's important to highlight, if you just look at the headline numbers, that perhaps masks what was a very uneven recovery and different parts of the market, really from that that nadir in March, 23rd of March was, was market nadir. The recovery from then has been rather differentiated depending on the particular characteristics of the different regions. Uh, and leading the way, of course, with the, was the US. US markets from that nadir actually made 74%, a huge bounce coming through from there. The UK lagged a little bit, still up 29% from those lows, um, but still making a, a significant bounce in what was quite a difficult environment overall. 
So if we look at equity markets overall for 2020, the US actually made a positive 21% return. Who would have thought many of these markets will, will give strong returns, even as much of the global economy uh, is, is shut down? But that's what happens with markets, particularly when you get stimulus. So the US finished up 21%. Emerging markets, not far behind, up 18%. Bear in mind, a lot of emerging markets, in particular China, uh, dealt with the crisis relatively quickly. We didn't see this broad spread across dense uh, populations. So actually that's helped emerging markets do very well last year as well. Japan was up 11%, Europe up 2%, and the UK, uh, one of the only major regions to still register a negative return. Those are that ended down 13%, all those in, in local currency terms. And the reason behind that has been determined largely by the composition of those markets. And what we saw, those markets that are a little bit more insulated, that aren't as cyclical, tended to do better. The US has done particularly well, both because its economy is less sensitive to the global economy, but also its market is dominated by mega cap tech stocks, which have actually done relatively well, all things considered, out of the crisis, the likes of um, Facebook, Netflix, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, all actually benefit, their business models benefit from the, the stay-at-home uh, element that we've seen across developed markets. Conversely, in the UK, where we're much more cyclically sensitive, uh, a lot of those, both the economy and the market, have been left behind. So that really explains some of the differentiation. And I think it is worth highlighting, even though we use full calendar years as as our sort of metric you know that that's fairly arbitrary and we are still very much in the middle of uh, of this pathway for the crisis the only other thing to highlight of course gold has done extremely well we topped that up uh, in in march during in the middle of that crisis uh, particularly as central banks have been pumping money in gold tends to benefit from that gold actually, actually up 25% on the year at one point it was high as high as 35% before giving up some of that strength towards the end of the year, but still a very strong performance and one we've talked about before on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Well, it's obviously been tumultuous times in the markets. It was pleasing to see that the election of arguably the most powerful individual in the world, the President of the United States, passed without hitch or raised voice. So what is your take on the outlook for our American cousins in terms of the blue wave, Fed stimulus and future sales of MAGA merchandise? Well, US politics has certainly given us plenty to talk about over the last half decade. Um, as you highlight, you know, sadly, all, all of the, the rioting and threats of impeachment that are currently ongoing is dominating the news flow. Actually, the markets, by and large, are looking through that noise. I don't think, it, you know, obviously it has uh, an impact in terms of the, the more academic views on democracy and, and the state of politics. But in terms of markets, it has that much less of an impact. What is much more important is the ultimate outcome of November's elections. And I think it's interesting, everything that we thought might happen in November, so if you listen to our October, November podcast, we talk about this, what we thought might happen did happen with quite a significant lag. We talked uh, November and the podcast following about the blue shift, which is where initially Donald Trump looked like it won, but then as the ballots were the mail-in ballots were counted, that shift in terms of the proportions as those extra votes were, were counted. So we had the blue shift come through. Actually, in the aftermath of the election, it didn't look like we'd get, as you say, the, the blue wave. That is, Democrats in control of both houses of Congress, so the Senate and uh, the House of Representatives, 
and the presidency. It didn't look like that would come through, but because of the, the way Georgia operates its elections, two of the Georgia Senate seats went to a runoff because no single candidate got more than 50%. So they had a runoff at the start of this year. And against all probabilities, as it was a couple of months ago, the Democrats took both of those. There was a big shift in, in the probabilities from immediately post the election through most of December, it towards the end of December at the start of January, actually the probability of the Democrats taking those started to increase. And in the end they did, uh, Democrats took both of those seats and that gives crucially the Democrats control of the Senate once the, the new administrations and, and new senators and, uh, and congressmen take their seats. Uh, and that's gonna be really important because that means with the Democrats controlling both chambers of Congress and the presidency, they can control the legislative agenda. It makes it a lot easier to get for, for Joe Biden to get his key appointment proved by the Senate. So that's important. What it does mean is we're likely to see more in terms of fiscal stimulus. We know that the, uh, the Democrats and Joe Biden are keen to, to have more stimulus measures coming through. It's also possibly going to mean more regulation, particularly in financials and big tech. And that actually might take some of the shine off some of the market optimism. What is important to highlight uh, is it, this isn't a universally good news story for the Democrats. They have the slimmest of majorities in the Senate. Uh, the seats are effectively 50-50. Actually, the Democrats have 48 seats and two independents that caucus with the Democrats. But because of that tie, it's the vice president that casts the deciding vote. But because of that narrowest of margins and also quite a narrow margin in the House, it does mean some of the more radical policies are unlikely to get through. Because even within the Democratic Party, obviously have a range of views, and some of the more conservative members of the Democratic Party would likely vote against any of the more radical policies. So it does mean they can get more moderate legislation through, but it prevents some of the more radical measures, which could overall from the market be taken as a positive. But there are other reasons to, to, to potentially be uh, not necessarily concerned, but we'll need to watch closely. As we have greater scope for fiscal stimulus, that potentially limits the scope for monetary policy stimulus. The Fed, if it knows that the, the government is likely to be looser with the fiscal taps, might just be a bit more reluctant with some of the monetary policy measures that might have been the case if you had a more constrained uh, constrained government. So that's, that's sort of the outlook. Still plenty to watch, not least with impeachment proceedings proceeding against Trump. And I'm sure we're going to have plenty to watch in terms of US politics for the next couple of years. So rowing back across the UK for a moment, social distancing guidelines in the boat obviously adhere to. Would you care to comment on the strong start equities have seen since the turn of the year, especially here in the UK, potential rotation within markets and where we are currently positioned? Yeah, absolutely. UK equities have had a very good start to the year. In fact, equities broadly have been okay. UK benefiting particularly. Actually, if you look at the first week of January, very small sample, but just starting the year, UK equities were up 6% in that first week, while other markets, US and Europe, for example, were up 2%. So still positive, but not quite as, as euphoric. And I think that's due to a number of factors. Firstly, good UK numbers, but it does come off a low base. As we said at the top, the UK really lagged through last year because of its, its globally cyclical nature. And I think starting the year on a positive, we had the Brexit uh, trade deal. So some level of, of agreement coming through, driving a little bit of, of relief. 
But also the theme of 2021 and into 2022 is really one, I think, of economic recovery. There is anticipation that developments around vaccines against COVID-19, other treatments as well, might give us the, the outline for recovery. Markets, of, of course, are, are very much forward looking. But it is important to highlight that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a straight line recovery from here. And there's still plenty of risks out there. And I think one of them is that even though we see the potential for this vaccine, it's something we highlighted before, um, but there is still economic pain out there. A lot of businesses won't be able to wait that long. And we're still seeing rising unemployment and potentially more business failures, particularly in the retail space. It's been a very difficult Christmas with those additional restrictions. A lot of retail businesses are sadly heavily reliant on Christmas sales. If those didn't come through, we might see a further period of pain. And if we look to the US, where we get slightly higher frequency data, we actually saw in December uh, net job losses in their monthly jobs report. We're likely to see something similar in the UK. So it's likely to be bumpy. I think it will pay, therefore, to be uh, very selective in the sort of stocks and the sort of areas that people are looking at. So recovery on the cards, but it's unlikely to be straightforward. Um, I think it always makes sense to focus on, on high quality companies as part of your core portfolio. And of course, we also need to balance as any economic recovery does come through, weigh that against the potential uh, for, for some of those stimulus measures to be withdrawn. So there is opportunity for the UK, particularly coming off a tough 2020, really the UK waits for that economic recovery to come through. As we start to see the recovery coming through, I think some of the negative sentiment around the UK could turn more towards a positive tailwind. So that's the potential for a little bit of that rotation. I would though say, try, try not to get too clever in the details because there are elements that, that could trip us up there. Thanks, Ben. So as was touched on in a previous podcast, oil traded at a negative price for the first time ever on the 20th of April, 2020. Thus, had we been in a, off the coast of America in our boat at that moment in time, American oil traders would have filled this up with the black gold and taken it off their hands uh, and would have paid us to, to, to do so. Although both Brent and WTI still trade lower than at the beginning of 2020, the prices are trading currently at the highest levels since the pandemic began. What do you feel this says about the market's view on economic demand? Well, I, I, I think the view is somewhat coloured by the experience of, of March 2020. And as you say, that extreme pricing, where at some points the market was, was paying you more than $30 to take this stuff off, off their hands. And oil markets are slightly more complicated. It's not like equity markets where you could just hold an equity and, and decide on, on your trading around it. Because as you say, to, to take advantage of that extreme pricing, you had to be able to take physical delivery or at least the, the, the equivalent of delivery. The, the pricing is set for a particular delivery at a certain point. You need to make uh, adjustments around that. And that led to some of that dysfunction we saw last year, particularly in March in the depths of the crisis. This is the problem we have very broadly, even though post-event we know what happened, when you're in the moment, all you're seeing in March is business being shut down, an open-ended outlook. You don't know when markets are going to reopen. And because of that uncertainty, people are simply not, uh, not trading. And that's the concern we had then. As we move to now, there's a couple of factors in play. 
there is this sense, as we said, for the UK, that economic recovery is on its way. We don't necessarily know when it will be, but the sense is over the next couple of years, some level of normality is returning and demand is likely to pick up. And that means that, that uh, oil producers can be a little bit more confident and oil purchasers can be more confident that over the next couple of years, there's likely to be more demand and that's helped support some of the markets. Uh, at the same time, some of the oil producers have taken steps to address supply. And the most recent uh, element that's pushed those prices higher has been Saudi Arabia uh, voluntarily cutting some of its oil production, really trying to support that oil price. And a lot of these countries need a slightly higher oil price to, to fund some of their, their government spending. So there's a little bit on the demand and a little bit on the supply side. Um, I think what is worth highlighting under normal circumstances, a very broad ballpark figure, but I think you typically expect oil to trade in the sort of 40 to 70 range. That is broadly considered uh, where, where most signals for the key participants lie. Anything below that, you'll probably start to see more uh, more producers get involved with, with cutting uh, some of their supply. And you also see countries, uh, for example, China, but others as well, when the price is that low, sometimes they purchase that for their strategic reserve. Whilst on the upside, an element we didn't really have, say five or 10 years ago, there's also some capping on the upside in terms of price uh, as shale oil and shale gas, the, 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 this new development, this new technology allows wells to be, to be drilled a lot more quickly for a short period of time. One effect of that is it can cap the, cap the oil price. If you see the oil price rising and rising and rising, shale producers can come in very quickly and, and increase supply for a short amount of time. So that helps encourage that middle trading range, 40 to 70, I'd say, uh, broadly, maybe towards the middle uh, of that channel under more normal circumstances. And that's where we sit now. So I wouldn't get too enthusiastic on the upside or necessarily the downside. But in answer to your question, I think it does signal both suppliers taking events a bit more seriously, stopping playing geopolitics with it a bit more, but also expectation of demand coming on side as well. So given the continued stimulus being pumped into the economy here in the UK and the resulting effect on the yield curve, what are your views on the impact for the banking sector? Uh, banks tend to be relatively cyclical, uh, key value plays in many portfolios. And I think they have, haven't had a particularly solid 2020 because of that. Uh, I, I think the outlook broadly for banks probably looks a little bit better from, from here on out again. You need to be selective and consider it as part of your broader, broader portfolio. Um, but you need to remember that one of the key elements for banks, particularly most sort of high street banks, uh, they, they're reliant on the yield curve. That is because they lend long and borrow short. For example, you know, a lot of banks make their money off mortgages. So there you're lending it on a sort of 20, 30 year view and they're borrowing short. It's things like partly deposits, some of the shorter term borrowing. So obviously, if the price for, for lending in the longer term is higher than it is for the short term, then you make money off that. That's how most banks make their money. It's called the net interest margin. Um, and at the moment, the difference between those isn't particularly great, but it is getting, getting steeper. We're seeing some of those longer term measures start, start to rise. So that's going to be good for, for banks. And what that really means is markets think in the longer term, interest rates will start to rise, Perhaps inflation will start to come through as well. And that's typical 
for most recoveries. So I think as we look at that, that, that steepness of the yield curve, that's the difference between longer term and shorter term or rates for longer and shorter term um, uh, borrowing and, and savings rates, then that is broadly a positive for banks. I think as we see uh, the, the recovery come through, so we see interest rate expectations start to normalize and maybe inflation expectations pick up, that's probably a positive for banks because of that net interest margin. Finally, no discussion regarding the extraordinary year that was 2020 can be complete without mentioning the meteoric rise of Bitcoin. I should note that we have never given advice on Bitcoin or any crypto asset as it fails to meet any of the criteria we would set for security of counterparty, open and transparent marketplace, regulation, etc., thus rendering it unsuitable for our client base. Indeed, with effect from the 6th of January 2021, FCA guidance prohibits firms from any form of marketing, distribution or sale of crypto asset derivatives and crypto asset exchange traded notes in or from the UK to a retail client. Taking that as read, however, 2020 saw Bitcoin strengthen by 305% against the US dollar, so that's actually a smaller annual gain than the 1,375% in 2017 or the 5,428% gain in 2013. Do you, Ben, have a personal view on Bitcoin or indeed on the wider cryptocurrency arena? Thanks, Robin. As you say, a very unusual asset class or asset itself, not something that I would advocate as part of a core portfolio, but certainly an intellectual curiosity and it's, got, and it's attracted a lot of speculation recently. Um, I think what one of the areas that makes it slightly more interesting now than perhaps it was back in 2017 when it really, really picked up, we're starting to see some of the hedge funds get a little bit more interested. Now, hedge funds, I guess you would consider investment professionals, but they, they are sort of the, the, the more esoteric, often more maverick fringes. So certainly not a signal that that normal investors should be should be taking it too seriously. Um, but, you know, there, there's there's potential, as we've seen in the market, a lot of speculators around it. As you highlight, it's extremely volatile. You know, people talk about it as a cryptocurrency. Um, and people talk about it as a currency, but I would argue it doesn't really it doesn't really achieve any of the, the three core elements of being a currency, which is to be you know, broadly considered a currency like the pound or like the dollar, a sensible currency is a fixed unit of accounting, um, a medium of exchange or a store of value. Well, you know, if a currency is, is moving around this much, you know, it, it doesn't really fulfill that function. If, if you're buying a pizza, you don't want to be sitting in a queue. Uh, and in a matter of minutes, it could have gone up, you know, 20, 50, 100 percent and wait till you get to the front of the queue to see see how much your, your currency is worth. So it doesn't really function particularly well in that regard. And it, it is extremely volatile. I mean, we'll, we all love seeing these numbers shooting up, but you've got to remember volatility is on the downside as well. And one of the problems is it's, it's that, that mathematical element that, that we need to remember. A, a given security or, or asset can go up multiple hundreds of, of percent, two, three hundred, as you highlighted. An asset can only go down 100% before you've lost all your money. So, you know, I, I know if, if you don't think about it too cleverly, you go, okay, it's gone up 400%, down 100%. That must mean basic maths, I'm still at 300%. No, once something's gone down 100%, you've lost all your money. 
uh, and, and that's important to remember. And I highlight that because, you know, I mean, you look at 2017 when this took off, went up over you know, a thousand, almost 2000 uh, percent, a huge amount through the course of that year. But then subsequently, and this is when everyone's excited, people were talking to us about it um, or clients were, were asking. It then subsequently lost over 80 percent of its value. You know, and again, we saw it in 2019 stock was up or the sorry, the Bitcoin was up uh, over 200 percent and then it fell 50 odd percent as well. And we remember that this year, uh, as you said, up several hundred percent through the course of 2020. And in, in the last couple of days, you know, bet between the, the 8th of January, I think a couple of days ago when we, we first started talking about this to yesterday, the 11th of January, it's already lost over 25 percent. So, I mean, it's sure it, it's something that some people, if they feel that way inclined, can speculate on uh, what is an extremely volatile asset class. And broadly, in terms of the marketplace, it is interesting intellectually to see the developments. Um, but, you know, I don't think you want to use this as a core part of your portfolio. What I would say, we'll probably see more developments on this through over the next few years. It is the, the, the blockchain element that's much more interesting. Um, and cryptocurrencies is a form of blockchain, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not every instance. Um, so just because I'm very wary of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, blockchain, I think, is a different and interesting technology that we did talk about a couple of years ago. Um, probably subject for a whole other podcast. But, you know, I'm not saying blockchain is, is pointless. What I am saying is I'd be extremely wary about Bitcoin. Ultimately, it is a finite asset. I know because it's electronic, it seems not finite, but the way it operates, it has mathematical formulae that control its its production and its increase. And I think when you look at these extreme movements, all that says to me is this is uh, extreme speculation in what is a very illiquid uh, asset. And that's why you see these extreme spikes up and down. It is highly, highly speculative. Excellent. Appreciate that. So to wrap up, I would like to thank Ben, as ever, for his insightful comments on the previous subject matter. We'll be back again soon with a new, exciting, action-packed episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. Stay safe and thanks for listening.